This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Awakening to Community. This is Lecture 10, the last lecture in this collection, given in Dornach on March 4, 1923. Today I would like to report to you on the second lecture I gave in Stuttgart. It will not be so much a verbatim account of what was said there as a fresh discussion of the matters dealt with in that lecture. And I shall also want to include some comment on the Stuttgart conference itself. The purpose of the second lecture was to show the reasons why certain things that ought never to happen, particularly in a society like ours, do nevertheless so easily occur and are such a familiar phenomenon to those acquainted with the history of societies based on a spiritual view of life. As you know, there have always been societies of this kind, and they were always adapted to their period. In earlier ages, the kind of consciousness required for entrance into the spiritual world was different from the kind we need today. As a rule, people who joined forces to establish some form of cognition based on higher, supersensible insight included among their goals the cultivation of a brotherly spirit in the membership. But you know too, as do all those familiar with the history of these societies, that brotherliness all too easily came to grief, that it has been especially in societies built on spiritual foundations that the greatest disharmony and the worst offenses against brotherliness burgeoned. Now if anthroposophy is properly conceived, the anthroposophical society is thoroughly insured against such unbrotherly developments, but it is by no means always properly conceived. Perhaps it will help toward its fuller comprehension if light is thrown on the reasons for the breakdown of brotherly behavior. Let us start, let us, to start with, review the matters brought up yesterday. I pointed out that we distinguish between three levels of consciousness, that of ordinary waking life, that of dreams, and finally that of dreamless sleep. Man's dream pictures are experienced as a world he inhabits. While he is dreaming, it is perfectly possible for him to mistake his dreams for reality. For events just as real as those that take place in the physical world where he finds himself during his waking life. But as I said yesterday, there is a tremendous, tremendous difference between dream experiences and those of waking. A dreamer is isolated in his dream experiences, and I pointed out that someone else can be asleep beside him and have quite different dreams, hence be living in a different world. Neither can communicate anything about his world of dreams to his fellow dreamer. Even if ten people are sleeping in a single room, each has only his own world before him. This does not seem at all surprising to one who is able to enter the often marvelous dream world as a spiritual scientist, for the world in which a dreamer lives is also real. But the pictures it presents derive in every case from factors of purely individual concern. To be sure, dreams do clothe the experiences they convey in pictures borrowed from the physical plane. But as I have often pointed out, these pictures are merely outer coverings. The reality, and there is indeed reality in dreams, hides behind the pictures, which express it only superficially. A person who explores dreams in a spiritual scientific sense 
with the purpose of discovering their meaning, studies not the pictures but the dramatic element running through them. One person may be seeing one dream scene, another an entirely different one. But for both there may be an experience of climbing or of standing on the edge of an abyss or of confronting some danger and finally a release of tension. The essential thing is the dream's dramatic course, which which it merely clothes in pictorial elements. This unfolding drama often has its source in past earth lives, or it may point to future incarnations. It is the unwinding thread of destiny in human life, running perhaps through many incarnations, that plays into dreams. Man's individual core is what is involved here. He is outside his body with his ego and astrality. That is to say, he is outside his body with the ego that he takes from one incarnation to another, and he is in his astral body, which means that he is living in the world that embraces experience of all the surrounding processes and beings in the midst of which we live before we descend to earth and find again when we return to live in a world beyond the senses after death. But in sleep, We are also isolated from our physical and etheric bodies. Dreams clothe themselves in pictures when the astral body is either just coming back into contact with the ether body or just separating from it, that is, on awakening and on falling asleep. But the dreams are there, even though one has no inkling of their presence when in an ordinary state of consciousness. Man dreams straight through the time he is sleeping. This means that he is occupied solely with his own concerns during that period. But when he wakes, he returns to a world that he shares in common with the people about him. It is then no longer possible for ten individuals to be in one room with each each living in a world apart. The room's interior becomes the common world of all. When people are together on the physical plane, they experience a world in common. I called attention yesterday to the fact that a shift in consciousness, a further awakening is necessary to enter those worlds from which we draw genuine knowledge of the supersensible, knowledge of man's true being such as anthroposophy is there to make available. These then are the three stages of consciousness. But now let us suppose that the kind of picture consciousness that is normally developed by a sleeping person is carried over into the ordinary day-waking state, into situations on the physical plane. There are such cases. Due to disturbances in the human organism, a person may conceive the physical world as it is normally conceived in dream life only. In other words, he lives in pictures that have significance for him alone. This is the case in what is called an abnormal mental state, and it is due to some illness in the physical or etheric organism. A person suffering from it can shut himself off from experiencing the outer world, as he does in sleep. His sick organism then causes pictures to rise up in him, such as ordinarily present themselves only in dreams. Of course, there are many degrees of this affliction, ranging all the way from trifling disturbances of normal soul life to conditions of real mental illness. Now what happens when a person carries over a dream-conditioned state of mind into ordinary physical earth life? 
In that case, his relationship to his fellow man is just what it would be if he were sleeping next to him. He is isolated from him, his consciousness absorbed by something that he cannot share. This gives rise to a special egotism for which he cannot be held wholly responsible. He is aware only of what is going on in his own soul, knowing nothing of what goes on in any other's. We human beings are drawn into a common life by having common sense impressions about which we then form common thoughts. But when someone projects a dreaming state of mind into ordinary earth life, he isolates himself, becomes an egotist, and lives alongside his fellow man, making assertions about things to which the other can have no access in his experience. You must all have had personal experience of the degree of egotism to which this carrying over of dream life into everyday life can mislead human beings. There can be a similar strain from a wholesome path, however, in cases where people join others, say in a group where anthroposophical truths are being studied, but where the situation I was characterizing yesterday fails to develop, namely that one soul wakes up in the encounter with the other to a certain higher state, not of consciousness perhaps, but of feeling awakened to a higher, more intense experiencing. Then the degree of self-seeking that it is right to have in the physical world is projected into one's conceiving of the spiritual world. Just as someone becomes an egotist when he projects his dream consciousness into the physical world, so does a person who introduces into his approach to higher realms a soul mood or state of mind appropriate to the physical world, become to some degree an egotist in his relationship to the spiritual world. But this is true of many people. A desire for sensation gives them an interest in the fact that man has a physical, an etheric, and an astral body, lives repeated earth lives, has a karma, etc. They inform themselves about such things in the same way they would in the case of any other fact or truth of physical reality. Indeed, we see this evidenced every day in the way anthroposophy is presently combated. Scientists of the ordinary kind, for example, turn up insisting that anthroposophy prove itself by ordinary means. This is exactly as though one were to seek proof from dream pictures about things going on in the physical world. How ridiculous it would be for someone to say, quote, I will only believe that so and so many people are gathered in this room and then an anthroposophical lecture is being given here if I dream about it afterwards. Close quote. Just think how absurd that would be. But it is just as absurd for someone who hears anthroposophical truths to say that he will only believe them if ordinary science, which has application only on the physical plane, proves them. One need only enter into things seriously and objectively for them to become perfectly transparent. Just as one becomes an egotist when one projects dream conceptions into physical situations, so a person who projects into the conceptions he needs to have of higher realms views such as apply only to things of ordinary life, becomes the more isolated, withdrawn, insistent that he alone is right. But that is what people actually do. Indeed, most individuals are looking for some special aspect of anthroposophy. Something in their view of life draws them in sympathetic feeling to this or that element found in it, and they would be happy to have it true, so they accept it, and since it cannot be proved on the physical plane, 
they look to anthroposophy to prove it. Thus a state of consciousness applicable to the ordinary physical world is carried over into an approach to higher realms. So, despite all one's brotherly precepts, an unbrotherly element is brought into the picture, just as a person dreaming on the physical plane can behave in a most unbrotherly fashion toward his neighbor. Even though that neighbor may be acting sensibly, it is possible for a dreamer under the influence of his dream pictures to say to him, quote, You are a stupid fellow. I know better than you do. Close quote. Similarly, someone who forms his conceptions of the higher world with pretensions carried over from life on the physical plane can say to an associate who has a different view of things, quote, You are a stupid fellow, close quote, or a bad man, or the like. The point is that one has to develop an entirely different attitude an entirely different way of feeling in relation to the spiritual world, which eradicates an unbrotherly spirit and gives brotherliness a chance to develop. The nature of anthroposophy is such as to bring this about in fullest measure, but it needs to be conceived with avoidance of sectarianism and other similar elements which really derive from the physical world. If one knows the reasons why an unbrotherly spirit can so easily crop up in just those societies built on a spiritual foundation, one also knows how such a danger can be avoided by undertaking to transform one's soul orientation when one joins with others in cultivating knowledge of the higher worlds. This is also the reason why those who say, quote, I'll believe what I've seen there after I've dreamt it, close quote, and behave accordingly toward anthroposophy, are so alienated by the language in which anthroposophy is presented. How many people say they cannot bear the language used in presenting anthroposophy, as, for example, in my books? The point is that where it is a case of presenting knowledge of the supersensible, not only are the matters under discussion different, they have to be spoken of in a different way. This must be taken into account. If one is really deeply convinced that understanding anthroposophy involves a shift from one level of consciousness to another, anthroposophy will become as fruitful in life as it ought to be. For even though it has to be experienced in a soul condition different from the ordinary, nevertheless what one gains from it for one's whole soul development and character will in turn have a moral, religious, artistic and cognitive effect on the physical world in the same sense that the physical world affects the dream world. We need only be clear as to what level of reality we are dealing with. When we are dreaming, we do not need to be communicating with or standing in any particular relationship to other human beings, for as dreamers we are really working on our ongoing egos. What we are doing behind the facade of our dream pictures concerns only ourselves. We are working on our karma there. No matter what scene a dream may be picturing, one's soul, one's egos, is working behind it on one's karma. Here on the physical plane we work at matters of concern to a physically embodied human race. We have to work with other people to make our contributions to mankind's overall development. In the spiritual world we work with intelligences that are beings like ourselves, except that instead of living in physical bodies they live in a spiritual element, in spiritual substance. It is a different world, that world from which supersensible truth is gleaned, and each of us has to adapt himself to it. 
That is the key point I have stressed in so many lectures given here. Anthroposophical cognition cannot be absorbed in the way we take in other learning. It must, above all, be approached with a different feeling. The feeling that it gives one a sudden jolt of awakening, such as one experiences at hand of colors pouring into one's eyes, of tones pouring into one's ears, waking one out of the self-begotten pictures of the dream world. Just as knowing where there is a weak place and an icy surface enables a person to avoid breaking through it, so can someone who knows the danger of developing egotism through a wrong approach to spiritual truth avoid creating unbrotherly conditions. In relating to spiritual truth, one has constantly to develop to the maximum a quality that may be called tolerance in the best sense of the word. Tolerance must characterize the relationships of human beings pursuing anthroposophical spiritual science together. Looking from this angle at the beauty of human tolerance, one is immediately aware how essential it is to educate oneself to it in this particular period. It is the most extraordinary thing that nobody nowadays really ever listens to anybody else. Is it ever possible to start a sentence without someone interrupting to state his own view of the matter with a reluctant clash of opinion? Excuse me, with a resultant clash of opinion? It is a fundamental characteristic of modern civilization that nobody listens, that nobody respects anyone's opinion but his own, and that those who do not share his opinions are looked upon as dunces. But when a person expresses an opinion, my dear friends, it is a human being's opinion, no matter how foolish we may think it, and we must be able to accept it, to listen to it. I am going to make a highly paradoxical statement. A person whose soul is attuned to the intellectual outlook of the day has no difficulty being clever. Every single person knows the clever thing, and I am not saying that it isn't clever. It, it usually is, in fact. But that works only up to a certain point, and up to that point a smart person considers everyone who isn't yet of his opinion stupid. We encounter this attitude all the time, and in ordinary life situations it can be justified. A person who has developed a sound judgment about various matters really finds it a dreadful trial to have to listen to someone else's foolish views about them, and he can hardly be blamed for feeling that way. But that is true only up to a point. One can become cleverer than clever by developing something further. Supersensible insight can endow cleverness with a different quality. Then the strange thing is that one's interest in foolishness increases rather than decreases. If one has acquired a little wisdom, one even takes pleasure in hearing people say something foolish, if you will forgive my putting it so bluntly. One sometimes finds such stupidities cleverer than the things people of an average degree of cleverness say, because they often issue from a far greater humanness than underlies the average cleverness of the average of clever people. An ever-deepening insight into the world increases one's interest in human foolishness, for these things look different at differing world levels. The stupidities of a person who may seem a fool to clever people in the ordinary physical world can, under certain circumstances, reveal things that are wisdom in a different world, even though the form they take may be twisted and caricatured. 
To borrow one of Nietzsche's sayings, the world is really deeper than the day would credit. Our world of feeling must be founded on such recognitions, if the anthroposophical society, or, in other words, the union of those who pursue anthroposophy, is to be put on a healthy basis. Then a person who knows that one has to relate differently to the spiritual world than one does to the physical will bring things of the spiritual world into the physical in the proper way. Such a person becomes a practical man in the physical world rather than a dreamer, and that is what is so vitally necessary. It is really essential that one not be rendered useless for the physical world by becoming an anthroposophist. This must be stressed over and over again. That is what I wanted to set forth in my second Stuttgart lecture in order to throw light on the way individual members of the society need to conceive the proper fostering of its life. For that life is not a matter of cognition, but of the heart, and this fact must be recognized. Of course, the circumstances of a person's life may necessitate his traveling a lonely path apart. That can be done too. But our concern in Stuttgart was with the life requirements of the anthroposophical society. These had to be brought up by discussion there. If the society is to continue, those who want to be part of it will have to take an interest in what its life requirements are. But that will have to include taking an interest in problems occasioned by a constantly increasing enmity toward the society. I had to go into this too in Stuttgart. I said that many enterprises have been launched in the society since 1919, and that though this was good in itself, the right way of incorporating them into the anthroposophical movement, in other words, of making them the common concern of the membership, had not been found. New members should not be reproached for taking no interest in something launched before their time and simply seeking anthroposophy in a narrower sense, as the young people do. But it is these new enterprises that have really been responsible for the growing enmity toward our movement. There was hostility before, to be sure, but we did not have to pay any attention to it. Now, in this context, I had to say something on the subject of our opponents that needs to be known in the anthroposophical society. I have talked to you, my dear friends, about the three phases of the society's development and called attention to the fact that in the last or third phase from 1916 or 1917 to the present, the fruits of a great deal of anthroposophical research into the supersensible world have been conveyed to you in lectures. That required a lot of work in the form of genuine spiritual research. Anyone who looks dispassionately at the facts can discern the great increase in the amount of material gleaned from the spiritual world in recent years and put before you in lectures. Now, we certainly have any number of opponents who simply do not know why they adopt a hostile stand. They just go along with others, finding it comfortable to be vague about their reasons. But there are a few leading figures among them who know full well what they are up to and who are interested in suppressing and stamping out truths about the spiritual world such as can alone raise the level of human dignity and restore peace on earth. The rest of the opponents go along with these, but the leaders do not want to have anthroposophical truth made available. Their opposition is absolutely conscious, and so is their effort to stimulate it in their followers. What are they really intent on achieving? If I may refer to myself in this connection, 
They are trying to keep me so preoccupied with their attacks that I cannot find time for actual anthroposophical research. One has to have a certain quiet to pursue it, a kind of inner activity that is far removed from the sort of thing one would have to be doing if one were to undertake a defense against our opponents' often ridiculous attacks. Now, in a truly brilliant lecture that he gave in Stuttgart, Herr Verbeck called attention to the large number of hostile books written by theologians alone. I think he listed a dozen or or more, so many at any rate, that it would take all one's time just to read them. Imagine what refuting them would entail. One would never get to any research, and this is only one field among many. At least as many books have been written by people in various other fields, One is actually bombarded with hostile writings intended to keep one from the real work of anthroposophy. That is the quite deliberate intention. But it is possible, if one has what one needs to balance it, to foster anthroposophy and push these books aside. I do not even know how many of their... I do not even know many of their titles. Those I have I usually just throw in a pile since one cannot carry on true spiritual research and simultaneously concern oneself with such attacks, then our opponents say, he is not answering us himself. But others can deal with their assertions, and since the enterprises launched since 1919 were started on others' initiative, the society should take over its responsibility in this area. It should take on the battle with opponents, for otherwise it will prove impossible really to keep up at the philosophical research. That is exactly what our opponents want. Indeed, they would like best of all to find grounds for lawsuits. There is every indication that they are looking for such opportunities, for they know that this would require a shift in the direction of one's attention and a change of soul mood that would interfere with true anthroposophical activity. Yes, my dear friends, most of our opponents know very well, indeed, what they are about, and they are well organized. But these facts should be known in the anthroposophical society, too. If the right attention is paid to them, action will follow. I have given you a report on what we accomplished in Stuttgart in the direction of enabling the society to go on working for a while. But there was a moment when I really should have said that I would have to withdraw from the society because of what happened. There are other reasons now, of course, why that cannot be, since the society has recently admitted new elements from which one may not withdraw. But if I had made my decision on the basis of what happened at a certain moment there in the assembly hall in Stuttgart, I would have been fully justified in saying that I would have to withdraw from the society and try to make anthroposophy known to the world in some other way. The moment I refer to was that in which the following incident occurred. The Committee of Nine had scheduled a number of reports on activities in various areas of the society. These were to include reports on the Waldorf School, the Union for a Free Spiritual Life, Der Kommendetag, the journals Anthroposophy and Die Drei, and so on. And there was also to be a discussion of our opponents and ways of handling them. Now, as I said, Verbeck, who had been occupying himself with the problem of opponents, gave a brilliant lecture on how to handle them from the literary angle. But concrete details of the matter were still to be discussed. What happened? Right in the middle of Verbeck's report there was a motion to cut it off and cancel the reports in favor of going on with the discussion. 
Without knowing anything of what had been happening in the society, it was proposed that the discussion continue. There was a motion to omit reports right in the middle of the report on opponents, and the motion was carried. A further grotesque event occurred. Very late on the previous evening, Dr. Stein had given a report on the youth movement. Herr Leinhaus, who was chairman of the meeting, was hardly to be envied, for as I told you two days ago, he was literally bombarded with motions on agenda items. As soon as one such motion was made, another followed on its heels until nobody could see how the debate was to be handled. Now the people who had come to attend the delegates' convention were not as good at sitting endlessly as those who had done the preparatory work. In Stuttgart everyone is used to sitting. We have often had meetings there that began no later than 9.30 or 10 p.m. and went on until 6 o'clock in the morning. But as I said, the delegates hadn't had that training. So it was late before Dr. Stein began his report on the youth movement, on the young people's wishes, and due to some mistake or other no one was certain whether he would give it with the result that a lot of people left the hall. He did give his report, however, and when people returned the following day and found that he had given it in their absence, a motion was made to have him give it again. Nothing came of this because he wasn't there, but when he did arrive to give a report on our opponents, events turned in the direction of people's not only not wanting to hear his report twice over, but not even wanting to hear it once. A motion to that effect was passed so he gave his report on a later occasion. But this report should have culminated in a discussion of specific opposition. To my surprise, Stein had mentioned none of the specifics, but instead developed a kind of metaphysics of enmity toward anthroposophy, so that it was impossible to make out what the situation really was. His report was very ingenious, but restricted itself to the metaphysics of enmity instead of supplying specific material on the actual enemies. The occasion served to show that the whole society, for the delegates were representing the whole German anthroposophical society, simply did not want to hear about opponents. This is perfectly understandable, of course, but to be informed about these matters is so vital to any insight into what life conditions the society requires that a person who turns down an ideal opportunity to become acquainted with them cannot mean seriously by the society. The way anthroposophy is represented before the world depends above all else on how the society's members relate to the enmity that is growing stronger every day. This, then, was the moment when the way the meeting was going should really have resulted in my saying that I couldn't go on participating if the members were solely interested in repeating slogans like quote, humanness must encounter humanness close quote, and other such platitudes. They were paraphrased more than abundantly in Stuttgart, not discussed, just paraphrased. But of course one can't withdraw from anything that exists not just in one's imagination, but in reality. One can't withdraw from the anthroposophical society. So these matters, too, had to be overlooked in favor of searching for a solution such as I described to you on Saturday. On the one hand, the old society going on in all its reality, and on the other, a loose confederation coming into being, eventuating in the forming of communities in the sense reported, with some bridging group to relate the two opposite elements. For we must be absolutely clear that anthroposophy is something for eternity. 
Every individual can therefore study it all by himself, and he has every right to do so, without taking the least interest in the anthroposophical society. It would be quite possible, and until 1918 this was actually the way things were, to spread anthroposophy entirely by means of books or by giving lectures to those interested in hearing them. Until 1918, the society was just what such a society should be, because it could have stopped existing any day without affecting anthroposophy itself. Non-members genuinely interested in anthroposophy had every bit as much access to everything as they would have had through the society. The society merely provided opportunities for members to work actively together and for human souls to be awakened by their fellow souls. But on the initiative of this and that individual, activities going on in the society developed into projects that are now binding upon us. They exist and cannot be arbitrarily dissolved. The old society must go on seeing to their welfare. No matter how little one may care for the bureaucratic, cataloguing ways and general orientation of the old committee, it must go on looking after things it has started. No one else can do this for it. It is very mistaken to believe that someone who is only interested in anthroposophy in general, a situation such as also prevailed in 1902, can be asked to take on any responsibility for the various projects. One has to have grown identified with them, to know them from the inside out. So the old society must go on existing. It is an absolutely real entity. But others who simply want anthroposophy as such also have every right to have access to it. For their satisfaction, we created the loose confederation I spoke of yesterday, and it too will have its board of trustees made up of those whose names I mentioned. So now we have two sets of trustees, who will in turn select smaller committees to handle matters of common concern, so that the society will remain one entity. That the loose confederation does take an interest in what develops out of the society was borne out by the motion to re-establish it, which was immediately made by the very youngest members of the youth movement, the students. So it has now been re-established and will have a fully legitimate function. Indeed, this was one of the most pressing, vital issues of the anthroposophical movement and the society. An especially interesting motion was made by the pupils of the upper classes of the Waldorf School. I read it aloud myself. I read it aloud myself since it had been sent to me. These upper-class students of the Waldorf School made a motion more or less to the following effect. They said, quote, We have been developing along lines laid down in the basic precepts of the Waldorf School. Next year we are supposed to take our university examinations. Perhaps difficulties of some sort will prevent it. But in any case, how will things work out for us in an ordinary university after having been educated according to the right principles of the Waldorf School? Close quote. These students went on to give a nice description of universities, and in conclusion moved that a university be established where erstwhile pupils of the Waldorf School could continue their studies. This was really quite insightful and right. The motion was immediately adopted by the representatives of the academic youth movement, and in order to get some capital together to start such an institution, they even collected a fund amounting, I believe, to some twenty-five million marks which, though it may not be a great deal of money under present inflationary conditions, is nevertheless a quite respectable sum. 
These days, of course, one cannot set up a university on 25 million marks. But if one could find an American to donate a billion marks or more for such a purpose, a beginning could be made. Otherwise, of course, it couldn't be done. And even a billion marks might not be enough. I can't immediately calculate what would be needed. But if such a possibility did exist, we would really be embarrassed, frightfully embarrassed, even if there were a prospect of obtaining official recognition in the matter of diplomas and examinations. The problem would be the staffing of such an institution. Should it be done with Waldorf faculty or with members of our research institutions? That could certainly be done, but then we would have no Waldorf school and no research institutions. The way the Anthroposophical Society has been developing in recent years has tended to keep out people who might otherwise have joined it. It has become incredibly difficult when a teacher is needed for a new class being added to the Waldorf School to find one among the membership. In spite of all the outstanding congresses and other accomplishments we have to our credit, the Society's orientation has made people feel that though Anthroposophy pleased them well enough, they did not want to become members. We are going to have to work at the task of restoring the society to its true foundation, excuse me, to its true function. For there are many people in the world predestined to make anthroposophy the most vital content of their hearts and souls. But the society must do its part in making this possible. As we face this challenge, it is immediately obvious that we must change our course and start bringing anthroposophy to the world's attention so that mankind has a chance to become acquainted with it. Our opponents are projecting a caricature of anthroposophy, and they are working hard at the job. Their writings contain unacknowledged material from anthroposophical cycles. Nowadays they are, there are lending libraries where the cycles can be borrowed and so on. The old way of thinking about these things no longer fits the situation. There are second-hand bookshops that lend cycles for a fee so that anybody who wants to read them can now do so. We show ourselves ignorant of modern social life if we think that things like cycles can be kept secret. That is no longer possible today. Our time has become democratic even in matters of the spirit. We should realize that anthroposophy has to be made known. That is the impulse motivating the loosely federated section. The people who have come together in it are interested, first and foremost, in making anthroposophy widely known. I am fully aware that this will open new outlets through which much that members think should be kept within the society will flow out into the world, but we have to adjust ourselves to the time's needs, and anthroposophists must develop a sense of what it is demanding. That is why anthroposophy must be looked upon now especially as something that can become the content of people's lives as I indicated yesterday. So, my dear friends, we made the reported attempt to set up looser ties between the two streams in the society. I hope that if this effort is rightly understood and rightly handled, we can continue on the new basis for a while. I have no illusions that it will be for long, but in that case we will have to try some other arrangement. But I said when I went to Stuttgart for this general meeting of the German Anthroposophical Society, that since anthroposophy had its start in Germany and the world knows and accepts that fact, it was necessary to create some kind of order in the German society first, but that this should only be the first step in creating order in other groups too.
I picture the societies in all the other language areas also feeling themselves obligated to do their part in either a similar or different way toward consolidating the society, so that an effort is made on every hand so to shape the life of the society that anthroposophy can become what it should be to the world at large. The end of Lecture 10 and the end of the book, Awakening to Community, uh, by Rudolf Steiner, uh, given in 1923.